Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Record is on. Three, two, one. Welcome to another BritFleets.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and it is my privilege to have um, horror. I, I, I can't begin to where to start with you, but you've you, you've sort of uh, you've been involved with horror as long as I can remember. Uh, and we're here to talk about your latest film. It's Larry Fessenden talking about Depraved. Welcome to the show. Well, hey, hey, hey! It's grand to be here. Indeed. On the Britflix platform. Shame we're not in the room, but let's make the best of what we can do on Skype. Fantastic. So first first off, let's just get everybody up to speed with the facts. So release date for Depraved in the UK is going to be when? Seems like it's December 1st. I'm very excited for everybody to check it out. Indeed. First day of Christmas. Open up that advent calendar. Watch Depraved. <laughs> and we do actually make advent calendars as well. Order yours now at glassipicks.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we go into any details, do you want to give the listener a brief synopsis to what Depraved is all about? Yes, Depraved is uh, my modern Frankenstein story. It's okay to walk into the theater with that in mind. It's a, uh, a modern telling uh, it stars uh, Alex Bro as the monster and um, David Call as the doctor. And then there's some other periphery characters that give it a modern uh, uh, spin. And uh, it came out in the U.S. September 13th. And um, that's that's what it is. Now, you... Um, you've. Uh... And we were just talking off air before we started, and it's it's sort of like, who do I speak to about this film? Well, Larry wrote, directed, edited, and produced this film. Now, obviously, he doesn't he isn't every role in it, although you do crop up in a bar scene. Um, huh. The um, so we're, I think it's safe to say, listener, that I'm talking to the right guy about how this film got got from a blank piece of paper to a finished film you can see on the first December. So. Larry, if we can start there, given given Frankenstein is is a big influence on it, what where for you, or what for you was the kernel of the idea that sort of set you off on the on the road to this becoming a feature film? Well, my overall approach to horror has always been uh, to somehow uh, respond to my youth when uh, there was no uh, DVD or Blu-ray. You saw movies on television, and I saw all the Universal classics. 
uh, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, the black and white ones. Uh, I did, in fact, also enjoy the Hammer films. And uh, I just was very enamored with the Boris Karloff makeup and the pathos of the monster. And so it's always been with me. At the same time as I grew up, I saw the movies in the 70s of Scorsese and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, you know, uh, Night of the Living Dead, and the kind of more visceral, um, realist-based uh, cinema really inspired me. And so I feel like my movies have always been a blend of those two uh, aspects, sort of the classic architectural architectural creatures mm. and then seen through a modern lens. So Depraved was just that. I sat down at the typewriter some years ago, actually, and conceived of, like, what are the modern issues that make this story re, uh, worth retelling? And, you know, at the time, we were involved in uh, Iraq, and a lot of the soldiers were coming back with PTSD and really beat up. And so I conceived of having the doctor be a uh, a field surgeon who had tremendous talent and was able to sort of bring a lot of people back from near death uh, in the field. And he comes back and he sort of is left wondering what it was all about, hmm. the people that got away. And so that was my way into a modern Dr. Frankenstein. I have him living in a Brooklyn loft instead of uh, an old castle in Transylvania. Um, and... Then I also conceived of a secondary character who might be sort of the motivation behind it, these kind of um, modern uh, corporate types. He's involved in the pharmaceutical industry, and he goads his friend who's got the PTSD to uh, to make this monster. Uh, so they create a man in a lab just in a Brooklyn loft, and and then it becomes a father-son story, you know, the, uh, the doctor's got this sentient creature that he's brought to life but now what do you do so it becomes a morality play about um you know what are our obligations to our experiments so to speak and of course it deals with all of mary shelley's uh, classic themes of you know uh how far does science go and what is our responsibility to each other so on it goes you know it's a fairly straightforward no no uh, i mean for when, when you're doing what I'm interested as because as, as a writer myself, you know, taking on something as monumental as Frankenstein, you know, Mary Shelley's memory lives on now to this day in horror um, as 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 iconic, oh, and the weight of ex, sort of you know wanting to deviate from that to tell your own story in a modern context as well as as well as sort of be true to, as well as sort of try, you know, no, knowing there's, it's in, unavoidable to, for some truth of it to come out. How did you stick to like, like your voice on Depraved as opposed to Mary Shelley's? Well, it's why I describe my childhood <laughs> briefly is because <laughs> I, I intuit all of this. I never felt I was adapting uh, the book. I never reached for the book. Hmm. I just know the stories. Uh, I know the Karloff version, James Whale's take on it. I know the Hammer versions. I know the uh, uh, the De Niro, uh, you know, Kenneth Branagh. I know a lot of the odd ones. And then let's remember, there's Ex Machina, there's Reanimator, there's so many other takes on this, uh, you know, species. And uh, all these movies uh, tribute uh, Shelley's piece. So, my agenda was actually, as I have done with vampire stories and, and all the movies in my company, are sort of about finding a very uh, personal uh, 
uh, way in to these classic stories, which in my mind revitalizes what might be called cliches at this point. You know, mm. we all know the Frankenstein. So uh, I, I never actually felt the weight of the responsibility to be adapting uh, a major classic. You know, I mm. just felt I was sort of embracing it and trying to give it uh, the love and affection and care that I feel for the story. Um, and, you know, that reverberates through everything. You know, means when you talk to your actor, you're very aware of the riffs you're making. And, you know, even the shots when I present the creature I cut in, which is a reference to the Karloff movie. Uh, but and the makeup is a, is, a, is a combination of Christopher Lee's, you know, blank white eye. Uh, there's sort of a, a scar that references Karloff. The, he has the hand brace. So there's a lot going on if you love these stories, mm. these movies. Uh, you get those references, and it's it's really a love fest. But at the same time, I'm very concerned with uh, the immediate problems of our modern world. So I'm also passionate to put those ideas into the story. Um, so yeah, it was it was a natural experience. In fact, I didn't really think about the real responsibility until I was releasing the film in the States. I started realizing why well, I, I guess it's a bit presumptuous to, uh, to have adapted Frankenstein. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? What do you think it is? Of, I mean, cause it's, cause Frankenstein is, is kind of unique in kind of horror terms in the sense that the monster, you could strongly argue. And I think it's what I always believe is, is the victim, not, not the monster in the, in the pejorative sense. Well, absolutely. And that's clearly, I think that was also, I should make it clear, the other angle that I took was that I wanted to tell the movie from the monster's point of view. Hmm. Uh, I, to, I wanted to show how bewildering it would be to wake up and be someone else, you know, and, and then my film becomes about identity. You know, where does identity exist? Hmm. Is it in the brain? Uh, is it in the body? You know, there's a great Polanski movie called The Tenant where he says that exact thing. He's drunk. He's on a bed. He says, if I cut off my arm, it's me and my arm. If I cut off my head, uh, is, is it me and my head or me and my body? And similarly, <laughs> if you were to, if you take a brain and you put it into a, a body, are you the, the brain that's looking at the mirror or, or are you the physical body, you know? And so my movie sort of deals with some of that and um and so it was this beautiful intersection of of sort of ideas of the moment um with with this class it's it's literally a dialogue with the with the old story and and then you're thinking about you know the brain and identity and you know one thing i don't actually do is deal with the idea of playing god you know it's the one aspect that also makes my film i think um feel more modern i'm not so concerned with the blast blasphemy but at the same time there's still repercussions to technological advances i was going to uh, say i mean it, it, without needing to be explicit it's still very implicit isn't it the nature of whether, yeah. whether you believe in an atheist creation or a or a or a theologian one the idea of doing it in a lab <laughs> is is not yeah. is not nature or god is it Exactly. So all of that, and that's what we deal with with mm. pharmaceuticals and keeping people alive when 
You know, another tragedy from the Iraq wars is that the, the medicine had advanced uh, so far that we would bring our soldiers home technically alive, but their brains had been shaken up in the particular types of um, accidents that would happen in those wars. You know, you'd get uh, bombed on the side of the road and you'd just get in your head shaken, and they'd come back all confused. I also did a lot of research about... Um, uh, stroke victims and, you know, how you can bring the brain uh, back online, if you will. And and that's sort of another conceit in the movie is, is the monster. We actually see it grow from very infantile, still pissing his pants and, you know, mm. uh, can't do rudimentary puzzles. And then slowly the tragedy is that as he learns more from his parental figure, um, he also starts to learn their uh, duplicity, and and you know that's where the uh, the corruption comes in. I love. Uh, I, I and, mean, I, well, I, I don't want to go into spoilers too much, um, not at all, to be <laughs> honest with you. But but I I, um, I think it'd be safe to dance around the idea that I love how you frame the horror of sort of Adam's existence around what essentially is just a fleeting moment in two people's lives. You know that yes. that one argument, that one storming off into the night, and then there's there's never there's I mean there's literally an unanswered sort of message, isn't there? Um, that 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 sets us on the road to what becomes a kind of almost like a secondary mystery within within Adam's uh, move towards sort of cognitive cognitive and sentience, isn't there? Well, that's uh, I like that you say that, and you know it's an aspect of horror. Uh, that is very important to me is sort of the arbitrariness of violence. And also there's something, I guess I'm superstitious, even though I've claimed to be an atheist in the same argument, uh, you know, is that um, he says, oh, we've got tomorrow, meaning, you know, we'll sort this out tomorrow. We're having a fight now. But I always do think about the idea of sort of famous last words, the last thing you say and how those memories reverberate and it's almost like he has unfinished business with his girlfriend um and the movie is about just being haunted by memories and he's trying to figure out who he was and mm. and you're right that that initial scene sort of haunts the rest of the of the picture yeah in a in a weird way it's a bit like you know you know the way that rebecca's ghost haunts rebecca you know the hitchcock adaptation yeah, yeah. Exactly. of uh, of the novel it's got that element to it hasn't yeah. it where Alex isn't present, obviously, but um, his presence looms large. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, you can anytime you compare me to Hitchcock, I'm a happy man. <laughs> we'll take it with jam on it. Um, so, so an important part, important part of making this movie it was is the casting of Adam himself. Um, so, where where do you find um, Alex? Is it Bro? Do I pronounce it Bro or Bree? Bria? Bro, yeah. <laughs> where, where do you where do you what was the search like because obviously that's given it's from the monster's point of view obviously his his casting was 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 an imperative to i guess the success and failure of the film i think so and uh i mean i should briefly tell the the listener you know this was a very long journey so i spoke that uh, i wrote this with a lot of sort of the uh Iraq war uh, fresh in my mind. So if you think about it, this was written in the early to mid 2000s. And then I did what is traditional 
for an independent film is you start trying to cast with a, a name actor that will uh, gate get you the, the money. Mm-hmm. So that went on for several years, quite honestly. And eventually I realized um, the one good thing is that at least I could think about the monster as maybe a um, an unknown, which would be in a tradition from the Hitchcock, you know, the, the, uh, the Karloff days. So I, I read an article about this uh, guy, Alex Bro, who had been in a play in New York City. And, uh, and I asked my casting agent if I could uh, have a day of auditioning, you know, local actors, which was the most fun I had. I mean, imagine spending four years getting rejections uh, from agents and just going nowhere and then finally you get in the room and you hear your lines being spoken by people who are smart and uh, interesting. And they're not celebrities at all. They're just actors. It was a great uh, reminder of why one even does this. Because yeah. for one brief, uh, you know, the script came alive again and I was so uh, inspired. And indeed, uh, Alex, who I'd seen in this article and asked to read, uh, just really struck me. He had an amazing physicality. Um, he had... You know, it's not easy to play the monster because you're going to sort of play it as if you're a bit dumb. So there's kind of that kind of vibe. And uh, it it was just a subtle spark that I felt from his uh, audition. And so then we struck up a friendship and I would go see him in plays. And uh, and I started handing him, you know, Frankenstein books and videos. <laughs> a long dating period. Uh all the while, I was trying to put together the movie with some other name actors. And, you know, eventually I just decided uh, I'm just going to do this the way my company very often supports first-time filmmakers and low-budget filmmakers and uh, and just cut the budget down to nothing and, and uh, work with a, a group of local actors who will be inspired to be in the film. And... Uh, and so then we we moved forward, and Alex very kindly stayed on. I think, you know, I had first told him he'd be surrounded by movie stars. <laughs> but he, just, he knew that it was an iconic role uh, in any size production and that he really gave it his all. It was a fantastic experience. And, you know, he's originally a uh, an athlete, and I think he was able to embrace – the challenge of the physicality. I asked him to lose weight. Uh, I think he worked out, you know, because he knew that the early scenes he'd be as naked as possible. So I could really celebrate the scars and sort of the physicality would be lodged in the mind of the audience. You know, even as he got clothes later on, uh, you'd always remember that aspect of the creature. Hmm. Uh, one thing I love from Coppola's Dracula is the idea of, changing the the look of of a monster as you go through the story and in depraved it makes sense because he is evolving he's growing up from sort of an infant to uh to you know an adolescent and then whatever and and you know coppola does it in his dracula it's so fun you have all the the old dracula and the handsome dracula and the rat dracula and the werewolf dracula it's uh just a fun thing to play with that's why horror is is more fun than just regular dramas there's there's um i, I think because what what a note i made when i was watching his performance was like there was a sort of like an understated intensity to to what was like the weirdness that he was experiencing 
that sort of didn't step in. It never stepped. It never ever stepped into kind of kookiness or anything. It was always. It always felt very very serious because to Adam as as the character in the film, it was just he was essentially experiencing life on fast forward. Exactly, and I really we talked about that a lot, and I wanted to convey this sense. Well, as I say, take the audience on a journey. Mm. We literally mapped out. We mapped out where he was in his sort of uh, life at first, like a child. And I also, because we spoke about the idea of a stroke victim, mm. uh, part of the brain had maybe died during the transplant. And so I wanted him very blank in the beginning and, and sort of this weird existential uh, inertia. And then slowly... Uh, Henry, the doctor, brings him back through, you know, puzzles and music and, and playing uh, ping pong. And we start to sort of sense that his cognition is reigniting. And I guess in a way, one of the themes of the movie is that through cognition comes mistrust, disappointment, you know, paranoia and, and guilt over mistakes and how you're, so that's, it's really about growing up. That's what the adolescent is struggling with, of course, as mm. well as hormones and, and, and feeling, uh, Randy and all of that, you know, obviously the monster goes and meets, uh, a girl and, and uh, things unfold. And so that was the idea. And Alex and I would, would trace that and say, Oh, I think he's probably 12 years old in this scene or, you know, he's, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, or now he's definitely a, a teenager, and then he suffers some form of betrayal, and and the rage erupts. You know, once again, all fairly standard uh, tropes from from a Frankenstein movie, but just trying to get at how that would really, really feel. That's the. I was thing. going to say, but also they may well be born in that, but in the context of the story you tell they feel like that would be the real reaction, that kind of binary sense of right and wrong, because obviously Adam's relationship with his with his creator, as it were, is very much on a on a very high trusting level. And as that trust almost begins to diminish with every 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 day he becomes cleverer, as it were, and more aware, then the exactly. only thing he hasn't experienced is is rage. And then when he does, he has to learn how to deal with that. And and obviously in the sense of a horror film that that doesn't always that doesn't always have, can't always go well doesn't doesn't go well let me tell you <laughs> indeed um i thought some of, become punk rocker <laughs> indeed. <laughs> um i thought that i mean going back to where i was saying about what what looms large in the film i thought that there was a lovely sequence that you sort of you you you, you remind us again when when lucy is um is sort of seen in the museum it was it was the it was like a lovely bookend to a sequence that you thought oh this is just you know um the uh Polatori sort of you know just enjoying his fun with whatever whatever he feels he's invested in or what he feels he owns and and has no awareness whatsoever of what he's just triggered well it's funny you say that because i propose that he does he uh, well, he doesn't know how the monster will react, but I like the idea. If you trace it, that he had seen the wallet saying uh, the Met or whatever, oh, and so okay. he, and when he takes the monster, he says, "I think you should recognize this place." And I, I like that as a detail if one catches it, because it's just that he's so freaking devious uh, that he wants to see if the monster will recognize. Um, 
the girl. Mm. And and there is this tragic thing that even though he looks totally different, he he has the the monster has a gesture that um, that we've commented on in his former life, and the girl almost seems to recognize it. So whatever, that's what I was mm. playing with. No, it was, lovely. And, it, was, uh, it was a lovely. It was a lovely sequence because you know, we we we, we the audience are. I just are surprised that sort of that because you think he you think oh he's got a dog with him he's gonna let him off the lead and he'll lose him you know that's kind of your obvious sense of feeling with this sequence and then it's right. not that at all it's much more as you as you sort of point out then it's much more conniving in terms of what's really what feels like chaos because that that whole you know um, first trip outside is is probably like is, is as far as you've got the awakening from the bed. And then you've got the take him right. outside, which is like this almost like the second awakening of Adam, because there's that just that simple shot you use of him like as if he is a dog, just sticking his head out the window, feeling the wind. Right. Which in terms of the creation, that I'm guessing that will feel like the first time he's ever felt wind in a rushing car. Well, absolutely. And I have my friend uh, as a great um, songwriter, and it's actually a song called Wind, which he wrote for his daughter, and it has this sort of innocence of first experience, you know, so you I appreciate you mentioning that the dog, you know, it's really his, he's stepping out hmm. with the, with the crazy, with the crazy uncle yeah, who's yeah. then going, uh, who's going to, in a way, philosophize and expose him to just sort of the history of humanity. I mean, all of these are very lofty notions, but I, I wanted to in a single film really say that Frankenstein contains, uh, truly all the aspects of literature and and you know that's what's so remarkable about mary shelley's book and and just the story itself it can actually carry the burden of what might seem pretentious but because it is about life it's about growing up and new experience so i propose that if you personalize it enough that it that you can get away with a movie that has i used to joke on set oh no this movie's about everything it's about electricity it's about the brain it's about the history of humanity and you know it's got a little gore and some sex too <laughs> so in that sense then so so the, if, if that song was very purposeful so i'm guessing then i feel alive during the lap dance club scene is also yeah. no accident either as a song choice. No, in fact, we composed all of them for the movie. Uh, right, okay. Because that felt like, and, that felt so truthful at that point when that music's playing. Well, exactly. you're, you're in his mind, aren't you? Yeah, and he's, I mean, you know, we sort of uh, obviously created it as a pop song that would mm. be in a strip bar. You know, we had a little bit of fun having the lines, if yeah. you listen, mm. uh, is exactly how the monster's feeling. You know, it's a double entendre. Her song, uh, singing about feeling alive in a relationship, but the monster's feeling uh, quite, quite excited to be here. Yes, he's, uh, he's feeling the fourteen-year-old version of being alive. There's the fourteen-year-old. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then he's really confused. <laughs> and that's, and I think that's also what's brilliant about it because he's kind of come to grips with sort of walking around, talking, listening, understanding, critical thinking, and then you throw at him human urges, and he knows he's feeling yeah, them. I, yeah, and you just you realise what a soup it is to be alive. And, you know, I have this strange reductionist sensibility. I really like to uh, reiterate simple truths because I feel like we forget them, especially in the modern world with the... Uh, 
tweets and, you know, uh, social media, uh, I, I sometimes just want people to take a moment and just really reflect on these simple truths. Uh, hmm. And so in a way, um, as I sort of keep referencing, this is a movie about an entire life, you know, from being born uh, to, you know, turning into an adolescent and then learning mistrust. We haven't spoken a lot about the character named Polidori, which, of course, is a reference to um, uh, Mary Shelley's compatriots the night that she wrote uh, Frankenstein. I was going to get to that. I have, I, I, it was because uh, I, I, I didn't know the name outside of hearing it in your film and then I kept thinking well that name can't be an accident and obviously Google oh, cool. soon told me the reference point um, so yeah and I guess Shelley being the name of the girl is is yeah. the same thing as well it's a really it's really neat that kind of meta stuff that exists within you within your film um, and I was thinking really when you were talking there about about the idea of you know almost like pointing out the bleeding obvious so we can remember why we actually are alive Crassly, it, 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 yes. it reminds me. I, I just interviewed Stuart Sweezy, who did uh, a documentary called Desolation Center, which is about putting uh -huh. on rock gigs in the desert in the Mojave Desert in the eighties. And oh, wow. there's, there's footage, archive footage of people who attended it, and like they're you know they're LA residents, but they've driven three hours to the desert, and they're talking like they've been set free from like urban violence they're like they just were like oh my god the desert isn't it wonderful you're like thinking it was on your doorstep you know that don't you it was but the idea is we forget what we've got absolutely i really feel like that and it's it's funny you know i uh i really feel that's an important conceit uh and that's what i mean when the guy says to the girl uh, oh, we've got tomorrow. And mm. I feel like saying, we, we don't know that we have tomorrow. So you really need to appreciate every moment. That's just in a weird way. If you had to reduce my, all of my endless prattling on in my art is just to say, you know, this is so precious. Enjoy it, uh, as best you can in the moment. I mean, you know, it's easy to say hard to do. We're all depressives and <laughs> have problems, but you know, this is sort of the the greater existential agenda, I think, you know, if, if there's no uh, pearly gates and a big puffy cloud to look forward to, then pretty much this is it, folks. So let's, let's be good to each other and, you know, try to muddle through and, you know, so on and so on. That's the... No, I totally agree. I mean, I think that there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful amount of satisfaction from having done whatever that done is, you know, as opposed yeah. to sat there thinking I can't do, which is, you know... Yeah just reduces and, and, to zero. And in a way, the, the very act of making depraved that no, you know, noticeable budget is to say you have to live in the moment. You can't keep pining away for the Hollywood, uh, you know, budget. So there's sort of a continuity between the, the, the way one makes this movie and, and what I'm sort of thinking about. Sure. Um, in terms of the, the presentation and, and style of the film, you, 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 there's two distinct things that are, that are sort of that I notice watching it. One of them's bleeding obvious, which is your use of overlaying mixed media to sort of yeah. give us a sense of either a the science or b the science stroke the evolution of Adam. Um, where, yeah. where was where was that coming from? As a as a as a, or I should say, the question I actually wrote when I was watching the film was. How much of that was on the page in the script and how much of that was something you thought your film needed when you'd made it? 
I think it was always essential that it have this other dimension because, as I say, I was very influenced uh, by a book I read about the brain, and I also like the work of Oliver Sacks, who has, who is a neuroscientist, but his uh, dealings with people with brain injuries lead to these sort of fantastical, um, almost literary problems, like someone who can't remember four seconds ago or mm. somebody, his famous book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Fantas you know, I mean, it, fantastic story, isn't it? I mean, it's phenomenal. Yeah. When you just have uh, something, and I just, I think the movie is about how, you know, that the brain is how we perceive the world. And so in order to convey that, I wanted to make the audience aware, look, I'm not just telling you a story. I want you to know that there's, that as we watch a story, our brain is experiencing it. And in the movie, it's about a brain transplant. So the monster's experiencing uh, life. So the first idea was to show, um, you know, neurons and, and have those sort of play into it. And the doctor says, your brain is reconnecting. And so you sort of, you evoke that. Sometimes I don't even trust just the simple photographing of a performance. I want to get in there with a, a third dimension and sort of show the physicality. And then just some of the other types of uh, textures, all to represent neurons and flashing, really back to that idea of like this fundamental question of what's going on in existence it's a physical thing and it's also a tribute to the sort of the idea of electricity that's in the frankenstein story because of the the karloff movie you know he's brought to life through electricity and i like the continuity of that because um the brain activity is actually electrical flashes you know hmm. so i don't know it's it's once again this kind of reductionist thing of uh, life seems very fancy and, uh, you know, a lot going on in your emotions and you're just so important. But actually, it, you're just a physical creature uh, having, you know, the brain flash. I was having, I was having, so, having this conversation about because essentially we, we take everything for granted until it goes wrong. So, I mean, I'm someone that suffers from gout, which is just horrendous when it kicks in. Now... For most of my life, that's never happened. <laughs> and then suddenly, you're uber aware of your own body because it starts doing stuff that nobody else is doing. And obviously, this is a very minor gripe compared to other people's lives and, and what they cope with. But I think you're right. right. We, we, we don't, we just go around, we walk, we talk, we buy food, we buy crap, and we go to work, whoever else it is. And, and until it suddenly goes, no, stop, wait a minute, I'm going to give you a reminder, you are alive by making it difficult. <laughs> That's exactly right. And I mean, uh, I, I want to convey that in my films and in this one in particular, in this story, it is about constantly being reminded that you're alive. And, you know, uh, as a person, I also have uh, hypochondria or maybe I do have problems, you know. Mm. Uh, and, and so you, I want to convey like just I think a lot of people have depression or they don't know what their mood swings are. And I'm saying, well, that's probably uh, um, a physical thing as well as mental and just sort of reminding, uh, reminding us of 
well, the fundamental reality of being alive is perplexing. That's kind of my message. No, no, and, <laughs> and I, t- I, t- I tell you, the the uh, conversations I've had with consultants is that because I can, I can, I've told them tons of times. I can, I can relate severe episodes to when I'm most anxious, and exactly. they get, and they go, "There's only a belief in this. There's no proof of it right now." So they can't say, yes, it is cause your stress is causing you to be ill physically. <laughs> uh, you know what? The beauty is that I'm not a doctor. I'm an artist. And what I want to say is it is your mental state is the world. Yeah. Uh, and I can say that because I'm just proposing it as an artist. You know, I don't have to be right, but I guarantee that's how we actually experience the world. And I'm, and, and like, I, I agree. And, I, and, and as the person, who can only talk for the anecdotal evidence, I believe it's true, but he, the doctor's just not going to tell me it is. <laughs> well, they don't have proof, and what are they going to do about it, and so on. But, you know, the other thing in this uh, film, Depraved, is, uh, of course, a lot of talk about all the medications. Um, mm. And, you know, he specifically says he goes through a litany of the medications the doctor's on to, uh, the, the monster's on uh, to, to, you know, suppress rejection of organs and all of the kinds of things you would have if you were <laughs> sewn together. Yeah. Uh, but then he does, he also then moves into, um, drugs for, uh, you know, his, his mood and so on. And just to indicate, like we have become a very, uh, pharmaceutical culture. Um, and I'm not really saying it's bad. I'm saying that's, that's another reality in the modern world that actually isn't necessarily in the other Frankenstein stories. It's just wasn't, um, part of the conversation, but clearly now, uh, we're all on some sort of drug and all of that affects you. Uh, those are physical, uh, things they've created in a lab that you ingest and that becomes part of your thing. So then I just say, let's put a, Let's put a graphic on there to remind people <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> Do you know it? And and in a way, that kind of that re, that reliance on sort of a chemical balance to to uh, to make the the body work. You think of like you know the um, what's the uh, the Theseus's ship, which is this idea. You know the 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 paradox of if I take a ship apart one piece of wood at a time and replace it with a new piece of wood, eventually I've replaced the whole ship and I've got a stack of old wood. Which one is Theseus's ship? The stack of old wood or the thing that floats on the water that I've replaced one place at a time? So if I'm, if I'm constantly replacing the way my body functions with chemicals, at what point is it chemically aided or is it organically aided the way that it works? And uh, Am I me or am I Mr. Pharmaceutical Company's um, uh, creation now? That's a bad existential thought, and I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to have that. I, I didn't want that nightmare, uh, Larry. But uh, yeah, uh, good. Good to think of that one in the moment. Um, now, in terms of the way you shot Depraved, um, you use a lot of sort of unorthodox camera angles to help with portraying Adam's experience with the world and life, and you know, waking up and things. You, you've got. You've got two. I noticed you've got two uh, cinematographers credited on on the film. Um, what was your conversation with them about that sort of look and feel? Well, um, where to begin? The, the basic approach that I have with making movies is that I really do believe the director's job is to design the film and to create the 
the, the shot list and the storyboard in advance because it's directly responding to the script. And if you've write, written a script, then it's a very fluid process of, um, in a way, you can look at the language and say, oh, I must have had in mind here a, a wide shot. So there, there's a whole continuity there of, of creating what the movie's going to be. And every shot... Um, I sort of had had written out in advance. The I'd say major architecture of the movie was the idea that it's from the creature's point of view. So very often we're not just going to follow something that he wouldn't see. So there's certain scenes where you're just listening to a conversation in the other room, but you stay with the monster, mm. and that creates that creates the alienation that he feels and it also shows that in life you don't always get the full picture you're trying to piece things together so those were conceits that i brought to the table and then the two co um cinematographers when i realized i was going to make the movie for um for very little money i i stopped interviewing uh, DPs that, um, you know, were going to be outside my circle. And I worked with the guy that works for me. Uh, you know, we've made a lot of movies together and he's also my office manager. Okay. <laughs> and then, and then the other guy, uh, has been an artist associated with glass eye for five years and shot a couple of our small films. The reason I had two is that, um, the guy that works for me, Chris Gotchdepole, uh, we have a great love talking about cinema, and I felt that he'd be the right guy for uh, being my uh, camera operator. And then James Seward, uh, the other guy, is was maybe going to do more emphasis on the lighting, but specifically on the strange rigs, because he loves a more architectural type of filmmaking. He actually primarily likes to direct uh, music videos, oh. you know, that short and he does animation. Oh, and so he also did everything in post-production, all the animations and overlays. Oh, okay, okay. He's more of a, uh, if you will, sort of uses the medium with a more aggressive artistic uh, angle and uh, really great in post-production, CG, and all of those. He does animation. So, And then Chris was more my, uh, if you will, my narrative storyteller companion. So even though I say that I design the film very carefully, uh, that becomes then a springboard to get it onto the set, and you can be creative and loose and take ideas in uh, as long as... Uh, it sort of conforms to the agenda. So that's how I make films, whoever I work with. And uh, it was really great having these two minds to work together. And it's, it, just listening to you sort of, sort of talk about how it went, it, it almost felt like an extension of the Frankenstein metaphor, you know, just different parts stuck together to, to make the well, whole, which is the, the film. <laughs> it had that feeling. And that's why I think the movie... You know, look, it, maybe it's boring for people, maybe it's too long. It has all kinds of potential problems. But in my opinion, the reason I, I didn't make it shorter uh, is I felt that it really was infused with uh, – it, it just was the sum of a great deal of thought and artistry from different people and that it, it does form a whole, you know, so it is – it earns its keep, uh, even though, as I say, you know, I'm open to critique about uh, its uh, some failings. But you know, that's why I 
think it is my offering. Here it is. It's almost two hours, and you know. But, but I, I can see why 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 you you might be ready for that sort of feedback, and you may have had it already. Um, but I I felt like it felt like it had clear movements as a as a story. Yep. You know, we were you know if it was a chapter of a book, then I was really going okay. That chapter's now finished. I'm now into the next right. chapter, and 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 I felt like I was I was it was always going forward. And in that sense, because of because of the unique beginnings of someone who doesn't know anything to right. someone who begins to understand the world from a kind of you know, polluted points of view from both the idea of he only understands what he learns and also the people, you know, if, you, if your master is a PTSD-suffering wharf surgeon and your paymaster yes. is a crazy <laughs> pharmaceutical guy who only wants to make a profit to um, to basically make, you know, bring bring dead bo- body parts back together so you can send soldiers. I'm guessing he wants to send soldiers to war who aren't really people. So, you know, you can't kill, yeah. you can't kill the dead because they're already dead. Um, which is a real existential crisis. Yeah. The other thing about the movie, speaking of its structure and length, is mm. uh, another, I think, uh, radical move that has to do with my interest in um, sort of point of view in cinema is that, well, I guess that's a huge spoiler. Well, I'll say it as vaguely as possible mm. is that, the second, the last third of the movie is from a different point of view. It's from the doctor's perspective, hmm. and you can see that, uh, you can see that in sort of the um, the imagery. You see his eyes open after a dream scene that's his, and suddenly we have his concerns. And uh, yeah, I don't want to. But that, but again, that's driven by the movements that you've created in the films, almost like. Rather than right. just simply a change of point of view, it feels like a natural baton passing in terms of what's going on yeah. at that moment. Exactly. His dream doesn't happen so, by accident, does it? It's 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 happening because of no, what's no. going on. Yeah. So that was another uh, conceit, and and what I think, and then you know the end of the movie becomes very uh, gothic and sort of almost fulfills the threat of if you're going to do this, you're going to end up. In um, in a horror movie, which is kind of the movement I use in a lot of my films, because what I regret about humanity is that we have a lot of aspirations, and there was this idea in the 20th century of progress, and there really was this dream uh, of democracy and everyone getting along, and um, uh, it's it's falling apart. <laughs> because there's too many people in environmental degradation and a lot of the ideas aren't aren't revered uh, and people get lazy and they have their uh, modern modes of communication. This isn't to romanticize the past. Obviously, there was horrible wars. I was going to say, I've just, I've just watched Jennifer Kent's uh, The Nightingale, which is a fairly oh, stern nice. examination of British colonialism in Australia as a horror film. And yes. I, as a British person, you don't come out of it feeling very proud of your ancestors. Well, and that's exactly right. And I don't want to seem naive. What I'm mm. saying is there's this presumption. That's what I'm really objecting to, a presumption that we're uh, heading, well, this presumption of progress, which was... Well, no, I think, I think that, that was something I, I tried to address that in, in, in reviewing it, because I, I agree with you. And, and in a sense, it was more... In the film, the victims are, clear, are clearly women and Indigenous Australians at the hands of the dominant weapon-wielding white man. And, yes. 
and you get the sense that 200 years in the future from 1825, women and people of colour have got legal and legal rights and protection that they didn't have then. But, and it's a big but, the, the idea of the entitled, powerful patriarchy that was then doesn't appear to have moved with the times as much as, as, much as everything else has progressed. So what we have is yeah. almost like this weight pulling down progress because it goes, look at me, I'm a victim now. And, you know, as we, as we see, um, yes. people who have everything just through a little bit of competition, through what, what they criticise as equality, go, it's not fair. And you go, well, welcome to 500 years of history for most of the people. Yeah, well, exactly. And, you know, I have the... Uh, it's interesting. Obviously, all the women in my film... <laughs> come to an untimely end mm. and you could say oh well that's a typical you know male horror filmmaker and i'm saying well no that's what happens <laughs> mm. the innocent the innocent are killed uh by the um i mean the two male figures just are so damaged and they really uh are not providing proper leadership or in the case of henry and Polidori, I guess they're not really providing proper parenting, and the monster does become a threat as a result. So, you know, it is this idea of um, the cycle of violence, and that's why I have the history lesson where you see the rape of the Sabine women, and you see that this is just an endless seething problem in <laughs> in human no, culture. Or... Well, look, let's uh, let's so, remind people then: when can they see depraved? Well, it'll be uh, streaming, I think, on December 1st. Fantastic. And as, as we're fast approaching the Christmas period, is there, is there other glass-picked films you want to... You wanna, glass-eye-picked films you want to uh, you want to draw attention to? Uh, well, all are canon. <laughs> we made a lot of uh, movies. Uh, I know Stakeland played well in the UK and... Mm. Um, and uh, House of the Devil, I think, Ty West's films. Mm -hmm. uh, I Sell the Dead, I Sell the Dead by an Irishman uh, is a fun movie. Jen, um, Jen Wexler's an alumni of the podcast with The Ranger. Uh, the Ranger, actually a very recent of our pictures. Mm -hmm. and uh, But go to com. We also do a fantastic uh, radio plays that is now a podcast, talesfrombeyondthepale.com. And that means every week you get new content for free on the Internet. So I can't imagine not wanting to take that into your Christmas holiday season. I think I will now you've told me. <laughs> oh, please do. It's really quite fantastic. We have... Only seven episodes up so far, and every week on Thursdays, a new one drops. Uh, they're fantastic, written by different auteurs of the horror genre and with uh, all kinds of interesting cast members, Ron Perlman, Barbara Crampton, uh, Dennis, uh, well, I don't know, Dennis, someone or other, no. <laughs> uh, lots of uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, all wow. sorts, Doug Doug Jones, lovely people. Uh, good stuff, Sean Young. <laughs> I think, well, look, we'll, we'll put links in the show notes for the podcast so people can find that easy enough. Um, I can't recommend Deprived highly enough. I think it's, I thought it was a great film, and it really is, as uh, as Larry discussed, described it, is a, it's as much a, 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 an examination of, the, of humanity and the human condition as it is about the journey of a monster into 
human society. Um, so uh, congratulations on that. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Fantastic, man. I really appreciate it. And I hope everybody enjoys the, the work. said sometimes with the British film industry it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's Granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.